The year was 1827, and the publication Scrivener's Monthly, an English publication, had a simple request that they wanted Christmas poetry submissions. So they sent out and they waited for all these submissions to arrive, and one such submission was one that was written by a certain Christina Rossetti, who was a poet at that time. And she had penned something she called a Christmas carol. The simple submission, it goes through the mystery of the incarnation and was seeking to bring about the understanding of all these mysteries and the way that we interface with them. And as it was written, it was rather, it was rather profound and quickly was adopted and gained popularity, so much so that in the 19th century, Gustav Holtz wrote a composition to accompany this beautiful poem that we now know as In the Bleak Midwinter. And this is a beautiful hymn, and it's one that's lesser known, but it's still beautiful because it beholds the majesty of the Incarnation and tries to wonder about it and to ponder it just a little bit more deeply. Perhaps one of the most potent stanzas of it, though, is the last one. What shall I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. But what I have I give him, give him my heart. It's a beautiful poem, and it expresses that sentiment beautifully, that as we've come to this moment of Christmas and Apples, we've celebrated the Incarnation. We celebrate God's greatest gift to man, which is his Son. And as we behold this mystery, we might wonder in ourselves, what gift have we to offer? What can we offer that is akin to anything like the Magi uh, at that Epiphany brought to our Lord? Can we offer anything that's similar as those gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh? We started off this morning with the book of the prophet Isaiah, and we continued on that metaphor that is so popular in Isaiah's prophetic prophecies about the Messiah, because he so often uses this metaphor of light, that the people in darkness have seen a great light, and indeed today we see rise up in splendor Jerusalem, a light is shown, the glory of the Lord has shone upon you. That he's speaking to this reality that these people feel like they are in darkness, and keeping in mind the context of the people of Israel at that time being in exile, they likely felt like they were in darkness. And yet Isaiah speaks to the reality of light, of splendor, of glory, of all of the things that are coming to them in time. And he starts to really lay out what this means. That it's such a powerful light that it will look like no light before. That even as many different nations as there are, all nations who have been consumed by darkness will look upon the light that is being shown through Jerusalem Jerusalem and will even see by its light. And it's not enough to say just that, because in particular, the people of Jerusalem will rejoice. They will experience joy like no one else, that their hearts will rise in splendor because they see what is happening and what they've been given. And so there is that idea that they will be restored, but not just restored to their former glory, but restored to a new glory, a form of glory that far surpasses the old, one that they could never even begin to imagine. And then he starts to go through these different ideas and this different part of the prophecy that maybe it illustrates something that foreshadowed what happens at Epiphany. That we're told about those camels, those dromedaries that are approaching and will fill the land, and that even those gifts will be given, those gifts of gold and frankincense. That, in fact, this foreshadows and really points the way and paves the way towards that Epiphany message, even though perhaps Isaiah couldn't have quite imagined 
the full magnitude of what he was prophesying about. That he knew that he was prophesying towards someone that was coming, the Messiah. But there was something so powerful and so majestic and so blindingly brilliant that it would even it wouldn't have even begin begun to cross the imaginations of the Israelites at that time, as downcast as they were. But that responsorial psalm it rings true: Lord, every nation on earth will adore you. That it's not just about the house of Israel, but it's about something so much more. We move on to St. Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, and he tells them about that grace that has been provided. They have witnessed through his own conversion and transformation. St. Paul, as we know, was one that was very ruthless. He was very zealous for the law, but to the point that he was actually accosting Christians and persecuting them for their faith. But eventually, in time, the Lord saw fit to reveal himself, even to St. Paul, even though he was doing wrong, that nonetheless, he saw it as necessary to convert him, to bring him about in a new way. And so he reveals himself and brings that light of revelation to him, and it was done in the perfect time. And this is a beautiful thing to consider because he reminds them that this was not done in generations in the past. This was not done in times long ago, but this was done in their time, that the Lord was revealed in, in a very powerful way. And not just in the way that St. Paul experienced him, but in a way that every land, every nation, every people could enjoy. And so he tells them, him, them all that even though they might have felt exclusive, that it was just for the house of Israel, the nation of Israel, even the Jews. Jewish people at that time, it wasn't a message just for them, but it was also for the Gentiles, those people that they long ostracized and tried to shove aside. Those people, too, were going to be co-heirs and co-partners, not even, or even submissive to the Jewish people, but rather co-heirs and co-partners, that they would be equal, that all would be called into communion by, to God by this revelation that has been brought about in their own time. And so he's reminding the church of the Ephesians to not neglect the Gentiles, but to also see that the Lord revealed himself to them as well, those that were outside of the church, so that they too could come into the flock and into the fold and into faith. Then we finally move on to the gospel according to Matthew, and we're told about this account of the Magi that approached from the east. So they come into the city of Jerusalem that they saw that star at its rising, but it has become obscured, and so they start to look for direction. And so they go to the epicenter of Judaism at that time in Jerusalem, and they start to look for the Christ child there. They start to ask questions. Even Herod himself, they start to ask, where is this newborn king of the Jews? We have seen his star at its rising and have come to do, its, do him homage. And Herod is troubled, so he starts to look around. He asks the chief priests and the scribes of the people, where is this Christ child? And they tell him in Bethlehem of Judea. And so he sends the Magi to continue their search in Bethlehem, telling them to go and search diligently for the child and then to bring him word so that he too may do him homage. And so they go and they start on their journey and that star that appeared before has yet appeared again. And it leads them to Bethlehem and it leads them to where the Christ child is and to Mary his mother as well. And it is there that they offer homage, that they worship the Lord for the first time and that they find him and they encounter him and then they offer him those lavish gifts, the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, symbolizing the way that Jesus comes to us as priest, prophet, and king. Then after having done their homage and after worshiping the Lord, we're told that they return to their land, but by another route, because they had been warned in a dream not to return to Herod. So they take that different route, that their life from this moment has been changed, that they saw the Christ child, they saw him, they worshiped, they 
offered homage, and their life was fundamentally changed. So much so that even the physical direction towards their home country, they changed even that because they were filled with awe at the majesty of what had just happened. Now consider this. We are still in the Christmas season, and we are still celebrating the mystery of the Lord's incarnation, the fact that God became man and condescended and dwelt amongst us in our midst, even coming to us as a mere child. But have we let that fact change us? Now, I'm not just talking in a general and abstract way about the way that we celebrate Christmas each and every year, that we celebrate that mystery, and it does change us for the better, but I'm talking about this year. Have you let the incarnation change your life? Have you returned to your home country by another route? Are you seeking the kingdom of heaven with newfound fervor and newfound grace, as only the Lord could encourage us to do? Because so often as we encounter the season of Christmas, it's so easy to just simply celebrate that day and then to slam our Christmas tree into the closet the day after and simply wait around. But have we let this moment change us? Has it truly changed our life and made it better? Because the reality of what we are offered in today's Feast of Epiphany is that realization and that reminder that Christ is now with us, that he dwells with us, and that the incarnation is not just something that we celebrate for a season and then we kind of put the decorations up in the closet until next year, but it's rather something that should change us in a profound way. It should lead us to wonder and awe. It should lead us to change our life in very fundamental and very real ways. And so, in fact, this is a moment of consideration. Those magi who were faithless people, who were people that were not innately religious themselves, they dropped everything that they were doing, and they saw the Christ child, and at once they adored, they gave him homage, they gave him worship and praise, and their life was forever changed from that moment on. But do we allow this moment to change us? Have we truly instilled in ourselves and our souls what this Christmas means, what the incarnation means for us, and the ways that it challenges us right here and right now to live our life of faith in a new way? And in broader terms, we can look at this and see the interplay of the light and darkness. Because in the first reading and in the gospel, we see the ways that that star illumined the darkness of that world, and it brought those magi from where they were, that place where they were, that place of darkness, and it brought them to the light of the world, who is Christ himself. And in fact, that reminds us that we too sometimes need that light. Because we can listen to all these accounts of the Gentiles, of nations, of those people that were around, and we can often think that we're not a part of the Gentiles. We're not a part of the people that are still searching for the Lord. But in fact, many times we are. Many times we are the Gentile people that need to search for the Lord more diligently. Many times we are the Magi who need to discover the Lord in new and bountiful ways. And we need to see the ways that he's coming to us in that humble and lowly manger and trying to change our life and change it for the better. Even as we might be struggling, even in the midst of our difficulties, our strife and all the things that afflict us from day to day, that many times we are the Gentiles. We need the Lord and we need to seek to be in fuller communion. But in that, we find this interplay of light and darkness. Many ways and in many times, we have found darkness in our own lives. And I dare say that we look around and we see ourselves in an age of darkness, in an age that thinks itself so enlightened and so self-sufficient that it no longer needs the Christ child. But I dare say that's foolish thinking, because each and every one of us need that Christ child now more than ever before. And indeed, our world at large, even though it tries to shame Christianity 
and push it off to the side as irrelevant to our day and age. We need this message. We need the incarnation, and we need the light of Christ in the midst of this darkness now more than ever before. But that all starts on an individual basis. And to that, I ask this question. Where are the individual areas of darkness that each of us are experiencing? In many ways, maybe we're experiencing the darkness of familiarity, that we are experiencing that darkness where we are just simply used to living life and doing that each and every day, but we don't exactly allow the light of Christ in in new ways. That sure, we kind of go to church on Sunday, we kind of check that box off, but then whenever it comes to kind of doing what we're supposed to do, changing our lives and letting the incarnation influence every moment of our every day, that sometimes we start to push that off to the side. It's too difficult. It's not It's a nice ideal, but here's me in my reality. But the fact is that if we're allowing the incarnation into our life, then it doesn't let us live by the status quo. It doesn't let us live life as normal. That it wants us to attend and to challenge ourselves in faith. It doesn't want us to just have faith be something that we do for an hour on Sunday. But it wants us to take the homily from the week and to apply it to our entire life. It wants us to go forward and to seek those new ways and those avenues of grace that maybe we haven't used before. It wants us to live in view of the Lord, to hear what he's speaking to us in scripture on a daily basis, to really seek after him and to do that work of changing our life and letting the incarnation change us, even right here as the Lord is challenging you and I in individual and new ways at this very moment. We can't live by the status quo, but we see the ways that the Magi, they approached, they saw the Lord, and they were forever changed. They didn't go back by that familiar way, as comfortable as it might have seemed. They went about a new way, that their life was forever changed. But maybe sometimes also the darkness is our own individualism, that our own selfishness sometimes gets in the way of receiving the Christ child, that we are only about this faith business as it benefits number one. And then whenever it gets uncomfortable or whenever I feel like I have a better idea, then I'm going to go off on my own direction. But in fact, if we're to live this life of faith, look at what the Magi did. The Magi were very wise men, that in fact they were most learned of all scholars at that time, that they, above all people, should have had that sense of self-sufficiency, that they had it all together, they had it all planned out, that they were truly wise in the eyes of every man in that time. And then they hear about the Christ child, and what do they do? They don't busy themselves, they don't continue their work as they're doing, but they drop everything and they follow that star to see where the Christ child is. As sufficient, as important, as wise as they were, that they saw the Christ child and they saw something more and they went straight for it. And that's an important realization for each and every one of us. Because as self-sufficient as we might feel, as wise or as learned or as together as we might feel that we have life, And the wise men, as wise and as learned as they were, and as scholarly as they were, they still saw the necessity of approaching the Christ child. And they worshipped, they did him homage, and they departed by a new way. And it's important for us to realize this fact, because in this day and age, it is quite possible that we can get ourselves convinced that we have life figured out, that we are number one, that we are the most important thing, that our plans are the most important plans, that our ways are the most important ways, and therefore we can't even be bothered to approach the mystery of the Incarnation. 
But what if we weren't so self-sufficient? What if we relied upon the Lord? What if we saw the way that he was inviting us by a new way to go and approach him and to do him homage? Because in fact, that's where our Lord comes to us, that he wants us to see the ways that the Christ child comes into our reality. And he doesn't invite us to look like we have it all together, but even in the midst of our brokenness or our frailty or in the midst of all of the different things that we do, that the Christ child is there and he invites us forward. Unless we think we're too busy. These wise men, too, were very busy people. They were about all sorts of things. And so, therefore, they had as many things to do as we do. And as busy as we are, it's all the more imperative. As many different things as we have to do and to get done in this life, it's all the more necessary that we approach the Lord with newfound fervor and newfound faith that we go and we see this Christ child because the star is rising. It's encouraging us to go forward and to seek communion with the Lord. And we see all of these things and we behold them. And even in the sadness, even in the mistakes, even in the sinfulness of life, even in all the things that might cause us to feel like we are a people consumed by darkness or by all the afflictions or by the trials of this life, that if we let the light of Christ into those places, then I dare say the Lord's going to illumine him far more brightly than we could have ever imagined. But that requires us to surrender dominion and ownership of these things to the Lord so that he can take care of them himself. No matter the trial, no matter the affliction, no matter the situation, no matter the disappointment or difficulty in this life, if we allow the Lord into those places, then we will truly find the light, the peace, and the joy that we so desire. And then the final thing for us to consider is the Magi. We have to wonder that when they went home, did they tell others about that light? Did they tell others about what they witnessed? Because even in the moment when they entered in Jerusalem, they didn't know exactly what they were saying to Herod, and Herod who was very threatened by what they had seen. But nonetheless, they saw that star, they saw the brilliance, and they saw the Christ child, and they went and told others about this light. And dare I say that I know people in my own life that could use the light of Christ. And each and every one of you, I dare say, probably do also. But are we bold enough, are we courageous enough to speak about that light to others, especially those that are in most need of that message? Because as many different ways that they can hear the light, there is none more necessary than the way that we are given and the important mandate that each and every one of us are given to go and bear testimony to the way that we've seen the Christ child. We went, we did him homage, and now it's our turn to go and tell the world to have that encounter as well. Because the fact of the matter is that we see the gifts and all of the different things that the Magi offer because they have found something so great, so brilliant, so filled with majesty and light that they could but offer from the best that they have. And indeed, I think the entirety of this homily can be summed up as this. What is the most important gift that we can offer our Lord right here and right now? When we see the gifts of the Magi, the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, what does the Lord desire of us? What does he see fit to draw near to himself? And perhaps that's where these words of Christina Rossetti are more powerful than ever before, as we've beheld this Christ child and seen the light that he wishes to provide. What shall I offer, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. But what I have I give him, I give my heart.